Welcome back to the ATI Podcast, episode 43. Barrett here, and as always, my co-pilot, the man right by my side, Mr. Josh Welch. Oh yeah. How you doing, baby? Doing fantastic, sir. Today we are going to be spending most of our time with our guest, filmmaker, documentarian, and video pop artist, Ian Fisher. But before, we just wanted to catch up the audience on some news and notes, talk a little current events. What better way to start than the 2022 midterms and results? I mean, it was pleasantly shocking <laughs> right me. right so there was supposed to be this big red wave and i wouldn't even call it a heavy flow menses personally <laughs> but uh this makes for the third straight election that donald trump or and or and or donald trump surrogates lost big yeah his endorsed candidate he has cost them the 2018 2020 and 2022 elections yeah and about to cost them the 2024 yeah i mean some of the statistics coming out it's got me really excited for yeah. the election like, did you see the women voter numbers? It's 68% of single women voted Democrat. That's awesome. In this man. election. Well, look what's at stake. Well, clearly issues with Roe v. Wade. Right. And I don't want to pass at the midterms, but then we'll get into a little... Donald Trump talk specifically, but of course, Herschel Walker, one of Donald Trump's surrogates, I guess he got the push from the ATI podcast. I mean, with those ads <laughs> that he ran on our presidential I guess election. that helped out, man. I mean, man, he's looking like he's going to a runoff with Warnock, right? Yeah, which is ridiculous. In Georgia? I don't understand that Which whole, is unreal to me. I, yeah, I mean, like, it shouldn't matter. Just whoever had the most votes should win. Absolutely. The, this runoff stuff is ridiculous. You know, and that's another thing that gets troublesome from state to state. The election laws are different. Right. And that has its positives and its negatives. But kind of back to, you know, our presidential platform, one of the things that we didn't do a deep dive on that I realized that we, we skipped over with some of the election laws type stuff I was going to propose was that there was a nationalized, agreed upon method of voting, Absolutely. rules, regulations, it's so that it is so there can be no consistencies right. from state to state because right. that's why you have these mm-hmm. you know month-long yep. proceedings you know just like with the biden and trump election you know the weeks that are days that it seems that it took i should say and then the claims of voter fraud and all the other right you know having been found false claims that were made did you see that one comment from trump because i know we're getting ready to dive back into trump but he was like i remember back in the day which i can't do a trump impersonation but he was like i huge. remember yeah <laughs> huge huge i remember back in the day when we had one day elections and they were done <laughs> and decided in one day there wasn't this drawn out process of elections there was just one day of elections and then we found out <laughs> He's, I mean, idiot. this dude. I, what an idiot. I think we can get into Trump now. Yeah. And what took place with Trump. Of course, Trump, this being Thursday today, 11-17, two days ago, 
Tuesday night, he yeah, announced his Tuesday night, yeah. presidency for 2024. He's going to run for the Republican ticket, presumably. And we'll see. It doesn't really look like <laughs> they want him. Yeah. And why would they? Because of this big failure with regards to these midterms in 2022. Well, and like, how could you put this man as your front runner with everything that's going against him right now? Like all the investigations, you know, it's just it would be a really risky move, I think. Well, let's just talk about the aesthetics because... Politics was a huge aesthetics game for the longest time, and it still is to a degree. Right. I just feel like the rampant access to media, whether good, bad, or indifferent, you know, there's just an overflow of information out there, and it's so hard to vet it in real time sometimes. And that's kind of what's on Trump's side because, you know, he obviously, throughout his presidency, throughout his campaigns, both in 2016, 2020, he constantly provided misinformation like he was literally breaking fact checking machines for working too hard you know <laughs> just the things that he would say they were just either abhorrently ignorant or just false he made snopes relevant exactly yeah. absolutely trump i don't know if anybody actually read anything about his announcement but it actually allegedly he locked the doors in the area the staging area that he was making his announcement so that people could not leave early <laughs> So that once he got to the part of announcing his candidacy, that the crowds weren't thin. Because he's all an aesthetics guy. Right. I did see a zoomed out shot. Did you see that? Exactly. And people are like mingling amongst themselves, not really paying attention to him with him behind the podium and stuff. Right. But Trump actually had the security guards lock the doors and not let people leave early. That's insanity. And so let's let's look at that aesthetic. Let's look at the aesthetic of all these legal proceedings going on against him. Yeah. It's not a good look. Come on, guys. Right. Like... Where, where, what are we doing? Right. What are we doing here? Right. Yeah. We were the country that was offended by the president getting a blowjob, but we're okay with this guy walking out with nuclear documents, top secret documents. And yeah, we may even give him the Republican front runner job again, you know? Like, yeah. Like, I mean, what are we doing? I'm with you. Like, yeah, it's just incredible, man. It's mind-boggling. I think uh, there's going to be a lot of interesting things that develop out of this. Of course, there's a lot of talk and push behind DeSantis. There's a train of thought that DeSantis should wait another four years. I don't think that that's a terrible idea, but I also think that DeSantis has a good chance, like strategically, if everybody's behind him in running against Biden and doing some damage. Because well, right, because there's some doubt here in the left, too, with Biden. A lot of l- younger liberal Democrats. Independence is what you have to worry about is right. independent voters. They and I don't think, want Biden to run again. I think DeSantis will appeal to independent voters in some sense. Now, I'm not, obviously, I don't like DeSantis. We've made fun of DeSantis on here. We've oh, dude's a total piece of shit. Jokes about DeSantis. But one thing DeSantis can say for himself, you can hate him as much as you want. You know, he was kind of one of those COVID denier guys, right? Yeah. And he, I mean, yeah. He was briefly closed yeah. in Florida. Whenever he opened up his economy, they had one of the best economies, if not the best economies of all the states. I think California was number one, Florida was second. But this last year, like, you know, as far as the business side, like, he can tote that on his resume. Right. And the country is going to look at that, especially whenever the country's in the middle of, you know, a recession and everything else. And inflation. And we're going to be looking at a gas shortage in the winter on the East Coast. So a lot of these things are going to sway independent voters. Yeah. You're right. And so it's 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 definitely a, a concern, but I think where the big play is going to come in on the Republican side of things is the fact that they're going to fracture their own party. It's going to be dog-eat-dog, which they always it always is in primaries, but if you're talking about a potential DeSantis run, you're talking about a Trump run, Pence, I don't know if anybody's been paying attention to him lately, it's pretty clear that he is making allusions to running. Right. There's a movement for Liz Cheney to run yeah. as well. She's one of the few Republicans to call out Trump, head of the commission against him, and I think it's, there's going to be a lot of fracturing. I mean, yes, ultimately, 
as we saw with Trump in 2016. Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and the like ended up at Lindsey Graham. All their personalities themselves were personally attacked. Their families were personally attacked by Trump, and they all ended up kissing fucking his feet. kissing his ass. Right. I mean, come on. Chris on the, Christie, another yeah, example. Yeah, big time Chris Christie. He ended up being in the Trump inner circle when it was all said and done for some period of time. Now, switching to the other direction, I think these next four years for the Democrats are going to be crucial because, like we've discussed, they've really done nothing for their constituents that their constituents want over the last four years. I like, mean, I mean to a lot an extent, of failures. Right. There's been... The not a lot of deliveries and a lot of failures. Let's talk student loan forgiveness. Right. I mean, a federal judge just knocked that down again. So that's another right. battle. They really, really have to pull off some shit in the next four years if they want to keep the support. And uh, they made a good start, like uh, the whole codif- codifying um, same-sex, mar- same-sex marriage and uh, right. interracial marriages. That's awesome. That's a good start. But that's... Do you see McConnell voted against that? He's McConnell's an inter- in an interracial marriage. marriage. And he marriage. voted against interracial protections. McConnell's another he one. Challenged. He almost lost this, but did you Yeah, here's another thing, too. Uh, Nancy Pelosi stepping down, too. Yeah. Very timely information. She just announced that today. Listen. And I'm all about that. I'm all about Let's it. Let's move on. She has been an ally through this Trump stuff. I'll give her that. But, yeah, she's a corporate Democrat, and she needs to be done. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's one of those that whenever we got on our jags about lobbyists and this special and that, interest, special interest politician, yeah. you know, it, it's a politician's politician, if you will. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things play out here in the coming weeks politically. And I also think that there's going to be a lot of interesting developments here in 2024 specifically as well. I'm very curious to see where the uh, presidential election goes on the Republican side of things. And I'm curious to see if there's any challengers to Biden, but we'll see. That's another thing with Biden specifically. It was in a recent press briefing. I think CBS News or ABC News is where I saw it specifically. He was asked about exit polls, exit polls at this last election, that is. And at the exit polls, over 60% of this country has said that that doesn't like where it's going. And they wouldn't support Biden in a second term. Right. And so that's very interesting, fascinating, considering, you know, what the results were. And there wasn't this red wave that everybody thought there was going to be. And things swung more toward Democrats, even in seats that looked like they were going to lose in many cases. And (laughs) Biden's response was... Watch me. Yeah, watch me. Watch me. Like some fucking old badass. Like, I don't. Yeah. I, I just, it wasn't a good look, in my opinion. The Joe show's fallen off quite a bit since he was uh, vice president. Without question. <laughs> He's it kind was, of the it creepy was a little bit more. Now. Yeah, it was a little bit more entertaining whenever he was just vice president. Yeah, I liked him when he was vice president. I mean, I still, I don't dislike Joe Biden. I just think that there was way better options. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There, there was definitely better options. And I think, you know, sometimes whenever things aren't going the way that you want it, you get resentful. And I, I, I would say that that characterizes what I feel towards Joe Biden mostly. Right. It's just resentment. I don't know. He just like played on so many different things with people like races and genders and you know just no well he tried to pander it right was very, yeah. yeah it was very obvious what pandering he was trying to do and you know? where's the delivery you know right. what i mean like that's my thing again back to the independent voters we could talk about women we could talk about gen z the people that turned out that voted heavily democrat and if that's a sign of things to come you know you're talking well over 60 percent, almost 70 percent most cases gen z's and single women are voting Democrat. Boomers are dying off, man. There's no question. It's going to happen. There's going to be a transfer of power. It happens between every generation. From a sociological study, you could really say that that's a lot of what the problem is in our current political culture. That is, the older regimes are trying to hold on to power too long, and they're trying to put things in the way of 
progress, if yep. you will. Yep. I know it sounds pretty basic, but I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. And if you look at people like the people that we've been detailing on the show, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Mitch McConnell's, Chuck Grassley is 87. Yeah. Diane Feinstein's actually 87 also. And Richard Shelby is also, he's 86. So those are those those are three people right now. Bernie's up there. I think Bernie's They're like, pretty old. He's in his 80s for sure. Yeah, he's. I think he is north of 80, but uh, he's not as old as them, obviously. Listen, we're not like promoting ageism here, but it gets back to the presidential campaigning talk that we had. And that's, there's some issues with being in touch with the present day needs. There is, right, right, especially right. if you've been in government for so long, you've lived this entitled life. You do not have the pulse on the people on the street. Right. We can't advocate enough for folks. Just again, remain educated. Don't believe everything that you hear. Try to vet all the information that you that's coming in, and uh, try to dispel and fact check anything that comes across your table, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. Stay educated. On to more positive news, though. Outside of the big red wave falling flat on its face, Democrats kept control, or it seems they are going to keep control of Senate. We also, you know, they did lose control of Congress, so that's going to be, you know, ending that two-year span of Democratic majority. Right. That kind of leads us on to talk about, more specifically here in Missouri, one good thing that did happen, and that is Prop 3 passed. Yes. By uh, 56%? Yes. And if anybody out there is listening, if you voted yes on 3, thank you, because you're doing the right thing. You know, it was very laughable, those signs that started to pop up in the last two weeks or so before the election that claimed that Prop 3 was corruption. I mean, have you seen these signs? Yeah. And then I also seen the thing that the St. Francis County Sheriff's Department shared on Facebook talking about like how if marijuana is legal, that the courts won't be able to intervene in marijuana use, which can make violent offenders and like tied it into family abuse and like all kinds. It's a crazy shit, dude. Obviously a bunch of false information and uh, i ended but. up actually commenting on that and yeah it got a lot yeah. of action yeah but st francis county was a yes county so there you right. go thank you right. guys thank right. you so much absolutely and uh, we'll take 100 percent of the credit thank you very yep. much thank you and <laughs> so what does that mean for prop three well recreational goes legal december 8th so everybody can smoke them if you got them even yeah. without a license then and you can actually instantly start owning plants as well really the big thing that takes place there's not really the infrastructure in place right now with concerning dispensaries, you know, supply demand because it's going recreational so quickly. Right. So there's not going to be like, you know, tomorrow or on December 8th specifically, there's not going to be a recreational facility that's open for you to go into immediately. You know, it's going to be the medical dispensaries yeah. that are selling recreationally now. I did see that our legislators were meeting to write rules on all that in the past week. And um, apparently there's going to be a register system, registrar, however you say that, register. Well, anyway, for growing plants. So you're not just going to be able to like freely pop some seeds in the ground. So what I'm saying is make sure you guys research all this and be legal beagle so you don't draw any unwanted attention, especially in a county like St. Francis County. But (laughs) allegedly, they're not even in the state of Missouri approving any new licenses until April of 2023 for recreational institutions. So, yeah, you know, that's going to delay things a little bit in some respect. I think that I don't want to predict that there's going to be a shortage, but I think that there might be maybe if there's a certain strain or product or manufacturer that you like will continue until oh i mean how can you police it and actually even in the law i read that you can you as a person can sell to somebody else wow yeah they can't stop that i'm interested i'm gonna have to research all this (laughs) there's some limitations but i was like shocked to be like what yeah hey you want to buy the sounds off me an extra ounce bro yeah that's (laughs) i was like 
how is this right? But uh, right. Riverfront Times article out there about it, and I will share that. And so, so if you got any further questions, but my big question was, when's it going to be legal recreationally? And uh, what's the infrastructure looking like on the on the retail side of things? So do you see what uh, Kansas City's doing up there by the ballpark? They're putting in like a weed lounge recreational yeah, park. It's a thing St. Louis is already doing. That's awesome, man. Yeah. That's cool. Because St. Louis had already decriminalized it and everything else, did what they did for the state. So, but, but they were doing that and curtailing those laws for business development because they essentially wanted to open up some of those lounges and stuff. Like, you're walking down the Del Mar Loop if you do it right now. There's so much <laughs> yeah. renovation going on. There's weed lounges and everything that's yeah. popping up. Yeah. There's dispensaries. So You yeah, like, walk down Del Mar, you can smell it. Yeah, you can smell it. People are just like out there openly I, well, smoking. Me and you experienced that at the baseball game. Yeah, we went to sure. the Cardinals-Dodgers game and we went to the wrong gate. I think we walked around the stadium and went into the other gate gate and uh passed a group of dudes just fired up there was county cops parked right there they didn't care i mean yeah. it was cool man it was wild <laughs> i know like the first time i ever saw anything like that was back in uh, colorado when i went out to colorado and i believe it was on my first occasion out there so they just voted for it to be recreational all the infrastructure wasn't in place but like the police were just very loosely there was i was at the rockies game and we walked out toward this porch because I like to actually like walk around the stadium. Yeah, and yeah stuff you got to like, get a feel of it and for sure. see what they what they have for the fans and yeah and and so on. So I was walking around the stadium and we came to like this smoking deck and there was a guy just lighting up a fucking ten inch blunt like it was. <laughs> massive that's and the awesome. police were just like right there like hey man you're not supposed to be spoken that in here that's all they did yeah they didn't get arrest him or anything yeah that's cool you know that was my first experience of that i was just like so taken back by it and this is probably 2011 i want to say like you know late summer and i was like man like this is just so surreal yeah you know it's and now crazy it's reality. Me, so i couldn't imagine it in 2011 <laughs> we're gonna ask you guys to stick around toward the close of the show today because we got a lot of season one closing agendas that we're going to be revealing to the audience kind of the guests that we have coming up and then specifically what the plans are for season two so we are reaching a year doing this now again so we're going to take a little time at the end of the episode to have a little bit of reflection too considering thanksgiving's next week so we're gonna have a classic drop for you guys and uh just kind of talk about some things that we're thankful for once we get there but now we want to set the table for our conversation with our guest today though and that guest of course again is ian fisher any of our followers on social media might see us using the terminology or phrasing video pop artists as it relates to ian and we just kind of wanted to I guess, peel back the curtain for those who might not know what that phrasing means. And, and, you know, some of you might be seeing that and thinking, what the hell is that? Well, anybody who doesn't know what pop art is to begin with, let's just kind of start with a brief history as to what that is. Yeah, pop art history began really in Britain and the U.S. in the 1950s at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London from 1952 to 1953. Young artists and, and critics actually gathered themselves as a, coll- a collective and called themselves the independent group. They began having meetings. Uh, some of these meetings included some fam- pop- famous pop art artists, such as Eduardo Paluzzi and then Richard Hamilton as well. And this movement really bore out of the response to the masses and the establishment and what they were saying art had to be and you know, painting it into these corners and so on and so forth. And so they really started making collages of modern pop culture stuff as a part of their brainstorming and that sort of stuff. And it was, they pulled things from everything. So they pulled from music, uh, they pulled from comic art, they pulled from celebrities, they pulled from films, ads, products. You know, that history is very rich and has a very DIY start. So that's something to me, you know, I'm, I'm a huge DIY guy. I'm just very yeah. fascinated from anything from, you know, grassroots movements. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
that definitely relates to pop art. So uh, Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns became more of the prominent figures here in America as we started to advance and initiate this movement as well, the pop art movement. In 1962, the term pop art was actually coined and was immediately applied to art containing repetitious patterns or bold colors, etc. And in the 1960s, Roy Lichtenstein actually became very famous with his vision and his aesthetic. He had prominent comic book art. It would have... He would really like implore thick black lines into his work and then right, really right. loud primary colors right. and bold. And then in 1962, of course, Andy Warhol kind of blew up and he began implementing his screen printing techniques to craft some of his pictures over and over. So he would start with the original concept and then, you know, repetitiously do variations or additions to that. So like some of his famous work of you could, would probably immediately think of would be like the Campbell Soups cans that he did, yeah. as well as the Marilyn Monroe that's kind of technicolored. Yeah, the, so those are two really big examples that most people just might know casually. A dollar forty nine can of soup that he took a picture of originally to start with. And I think the last time that painting sold was for over $3 million or something yeah, crazy like that. Yeah, he, I mean, Andy Warhol is one of the most famous right. modern artists, yeah. if not the f- most famous, really. Yeah. Especially here in America. So some of these uh, same aesthetics and principles you're going to find in Ian's work. And without further ado, we're going to bring you guys to Ian Fisher. everybody and welcome back to the ATI podcast. We appreciate all of our guests tuning in live for our live interview segment for this week, episode 43. We have a very special guest with us, Ian Fisher. Ian, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How about you, gentlemen? We're doing fantastic. We we appreciate you coming on the show. And, you know, we just kind of wanted to start by introducing you to our audience here and and how I became familiar with your work specifically. We talked a little bit before we got on the call today. And that is, you know, I came across your Instagram and I really enjoyed the pop art that you're doing with the custom edit trailers and reels on your Instagram in particular. I know that you also have that on TikTok too, but you know, a lot of films that I enjoy, things like Evil Dead, Halloween, you're doing your own spin with it and you're putting some humorous music at times, some pretty cool music choices in yeah, my opinion. It's great. I just I just love the aesthetic of it and I think it's kind of darkly comedic at times. I really enjoy that aspect of it too. So it's just kind of hits me in all the right spots and all the right feels. <laughs> Thank you. So if anybody hasn't noticed Ian's work yet, just check us out on Instagram. We've shared a lot of Ian's work. Uh, Ian also yes. has an Instagram himself and we've tagged him in our stories and uh, he will be tagged on all of our information going forward. Ian, I just kind of wanted to get started too. You know, I initially what I saw in your art, and I know a lot of people will say this with anybody that does pop art is, you know, immediately I had some kind of flashes of Andy Warhol and even kind of David, Dave Gibbons, the comic book artist. He did the Watchmen with Alan Moore back in the eighties. He was huge inspiration to a lot of other people and a guy I think you're familiar with, which we'll get to eventually here in the interview. But uh, that that's what drew me to it also is just that aesthetic. 
And I was just kind of curious what your influences are, like what what inspires you artistically? What was kind of the uh, the initial linchpin to kind of get you in this mode, particularly with the pop art? Well, uh, growing up, I learned to read from comic books and reading the comics of Dave Gibbons and uh, people like Steve Rude, and who I actually uh, made a documentary on. Right. And it, it was comic books that... Uh, really helped me learn to form a, a visual vocabulary. And then my dad loved pop art and exposed me to a lot of Warhol and Keith Haring. And this is back in the 80s before the movement had really, while it was still in that bubble. Mm-hmm. And and artists like uh, Gilbert and George, if you've heard of them okay. in England, uh, I realized a lot of that aesthetic and, and a lot of movies. I know you said you love movies. Uh, and, and certainly the the old rotoscoping techniques that where they would film actors uh, in real life and then they would animate over it, I believe, in, in films like Snow White. And then uh, like Ralph Bakashi was a big fan of that with the animated Lord of the Rings and Fire and Ice right. and things like that, which is a very high contrasty, flat, very comic book aesthetic. Aesthetic that that was very graphic that those films really leaned into in a time before we had, you know, CGI animated Pixar, beautiful films that recreate uh, life a little bit more accurately while still putting their artistic spin on it. And that kind of flat aesthetic. I mean, I think the closest film that did it was at Spider-Man into the... Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse, yeah. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Yeah, they did a great job. Really groundbreaking with a lot of the, the ways they recreated the misprinting and, and that kind of comic book uh, pulp aesthetic, especially from like the 60s and 70s pre-computer right. uh, printing and all that. And I, I know some sometimes pop art influences in, in various ways, particularly like in film. It's across all forms of media. Advertising, Music, you know, a lot of people, a lot of examples and what what we mentioned in the open, you know, a lot of people probably are familiar with the work of an Andy Warhol, if you will, you know, and, and things like his Campbell Soups cans and, and the Marilyn Monroe pictures that were very famous as well. And I was just kind of wondering outside of just the comic book art, was there other forms of media in the, in the pop art realm that influenced you at a young age that you really feel like impacted your work? Well, going to museums with my dad really exposed me to a lot of it. And uh, I, I didn't realize it actually was pop art. Right. And and it, it took me a long time to realize there are two different versions of pop art. There's the British school of it. Right. Which is the outsider way of looking in, which is for the comic book fans, that's more like an Alan Moore aesthetic looking into superheroes and what makes them American and kind of breaks them down and brings them back together in a new way uh, that has, you know, established, uh, helped establish the, the this wave of creativity in superhero movies and all that but uh and and then there's the american which is more inside the bubble and more uh celebratory of that right 
and and what was it the the uh, Ed Rausberg I believe it is uh, his signs are absolutely amazing th- that he did those truck stop signs and I mean gosh I mean th- there's just so many Roy Lichtenstein was a guy that was pretty popular in America too and I think he had like the American flags that were real popular that he did like it was American flags on top of American flags or maybe I'm misappropriating that with the wrong artist that is not that artist unfortunately okay. uh, the artist you're talking about Roy uh, Lichtenstein he's the guy who recreated the comic book panels. That's right. Uh, and is very kind of... Uh, Real bold black lines. Yes, but considered very controversial amongst comic book artists because they wonder, well, did he create anything or did he just kind of enlarge it and put it on a canvas? Right. But but it was it was people like Roy who celebrated what at the time was considered a pretty junky art form, which was comic books. I mean, comic books at that time were written and they specifically were targeted for children. Right. And so these were things that that when you were an adult, you didn't want to be caught dead reading. Right. (laughs) But this was a celebration of what is a, a... uniquely American art form. Right, for sure. Especially that of the superhero. But, you know, so so it, it was things like that. I mean, there was also outside of the official, you know, pop art scene, but it would be like the Pink Floyd uh, album cover. Yeah. You know, those guys. And, and But I really, I came to a lot of it through collecting comics in the 80s. That's awesome. That is very cool. And I know, I mean, ultimately... You're a filmmaker by trade, and I would assume that there's some formative films uh, that you grew up on, inspired you, and that sort of thing. What are some films along the way that really kind of set that path for you to pursue being a filmmaker? People laugh at this, but Evil Dead 2 is the movie that I saw in the theater, and it sent me to film school. That's awesome. And it it was films like that, Phantasm. Yeah, Yeah, Phantasm's great. I was one of those VHS babies, and that was one of the first VHS available, was (laughs) Phantasm. Yeah. And, I mean, the superhero stuff, like Tim Burton's Batman. So what's that, Batman 89, 87, or 89, I think it was. Yeah. That movie really hit my sweet spot at the time. Absolutely. It still holds a special place in my heart to this day. Yeah. <laughs> and then I would read this magazine, Film Threat, uh, which is now a website, but they were some of the first people, and this is pre-internet, that, that were really pushing, like, John Woo. And like Quentin Tarantino and that kind of early 90s kind of this is the cool factor. What else is going on? And it was extra cool because no one had access to it. Right. Yeah. Right. You had to find it in some dingy little VHS <laughs> shop if you were lucky. Yeah. But, but it was it was a lot of it, it was a lot of that. But but it was also a lot of music videos, especially, you know, I remember when MTV kind of first came out or at least when I first was able to watch it. And, and those early music videos were all pop artists dead. Yeah, very much so. Is there any special mentors that you had along the way too? Just, I mean, I know you mentioned your dad had taken you to museums and things like that, but was there anybody in your life that you feel like kind of influenced you through, you know, being a creative person? Sure. Uh, there was a painter here. I grew up in Maryland, right outside Washington, D.C. And uh, she was a... a, a relatively well-known Polish kind of abstract, a lot of splatter paint more along of uh, 
Pollock? Yeah, Jackson Pollock. <laughs> right, Jackson Pollock. Uh, I, I never say the name out loud, so it's weird to say. Uh, more along the lines of that, she really kind of supported that. And then in film school, I had a couple mentors like uh, Terry Southern, who wrote Easy Rider and Dr. Strange Love. Oh, and then wow. James oh, yeah. Goldstone was a director who... He directed the second pilot for Star Trek. Oh, wow. And cast like Scotty and all those people. Oh, wow. so, so certain people like that were really beneficial and really helpful. What would you say that as far as your work that you've done to date is something that really exemplifies a lot of your influences? If you were to say, if you were to introduce a new person, let's say our audience, for example, to a piece of your work. What is something that you say is indicatively Ian Fisher? Boy, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I. I kind of try to do that with this daily video art that I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. You know, it, it, so it used to be when I went to film school, which was pre-internet, there was nothing to do with a short film. And you could maybe get it on the cable if you were lucky or maybe like, like German TV. And there were maybe under 100 film festivals and you had to strike a film print, which was thousands of dollars. It was just it was so ridiculous. There was nothing to do with your work. And once the Internet kind of opened that door and kind of democratized who could see things and who couldn't, you know, it used to be about the short films, but that was 15, 20 minutes of a person's time. Right. And, and I've done the film festival circuit and, and that's lovely and amazing, but only to a certain point. And it, after so many years, it, it, it loses its thrill factor. And then I made this feature documentary, and that's for someone else. So what I decided to do was try to do something every single day, any of these videos, and just say, like, this is the best I had today. And with that, hopefully there's some Ian Fisher there, whatever that means. Yeah. But I kind of feel like this is the best I could do, everything I got for today. But at least there's going to be a lot more for tomorrow. Yeah, I like that. I, I like that. And that's a very cool concept. And I, I didn't really realize that that was kind of the effort behind the work too, was, you know, every day you are making yourself do this every day and putting forth your best effort for that day. And then yeah. you get to start all over again tomorrow. Right. So in many yeah. ways, that's kind of rewarding because I know one thing I kind of walked away from doing so much artwork as I did in the past. And it was very emotionally draining to me. And sometimes things didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. And I would I would take too much time to get to that next project and time would get further and further apart. And I think taking this approach that you have, you're keeping yourself busy. So you almost are too busy to worry about, have that worry in your mind. You're, you keep pressing forward. It's like, you know, a new day is a new opportunity. I mean, that excites me. That's yeah. that's a really great idea. And that's yeah. really good advice for a lot of people. That's too. a good approach to it. Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll tell you how I got to it, which is I made a short film called Magritte Moment. And from initial concept to finally finishing it, it was a good two and a half years. It took me two years to find the story and to edit it. Wow. And I promised myself I wouldn't take that long again. And then when I, I went and made a documentary on one of my artistic heroes, Steve Rude, that all in took me about six years. And that took about two to edit the full feature. Wow. And, and, and so, and I was working on another documentary on the popularity of superheroes in America and what it says about American culture. Mm. And I just couldn't put years of my life back into a project. And so it really took for COVID to hit for me to stop running in that same kind of race trap that everyone who moves to LA has, which is I need, I need to have my, my script and my pitch book and I need to be pitching my feature. 
I realized that with COVID, filmmaking as I knew it, it completely it is completely changed. Sure, especially on the low budget, under five hundred thousand dollar budget range. Right, it just that no longer exists in the way it used to, and I don't sure. even know how to do that. And with the streamers and this and that, what happened was I noticed someone I'm friends with on Instagram. He's a filmmaker, and his name's Lance Wheeler, and he started posting. AI art that he was creating before Mid Journey or and and all those. Uh, I guess he has his own proprietary thing. Okay, and he's in January last year, so that's 2021. He he literally posted, "I'm making art every single day," and I thought, <laughs> "Man, that's bold. I don't have yeah. the balls for that." <laughs> but after a few days, I thought, I, "Why don't I try something?" And I had played around and kind of created this short little art form while teaching myself After Effects mm-hmm. like 21 years ago after 9-11 in New York City, and which was trying to play with rotoscoping and to teach myself this stuff. It, at the time, there was nothing to do with it. Right. Yeah. It's only now with social media, there's really something to do with this. So anyways, I made a video and literally pulled it out of my ass and it got a good enough response that I just said, well, I'll do another one, but I'm never going to announce I'm making one every day. Right. Right. And so since January 2021, I've been making them every day. Wow. What was the first that you did? Uh, the first one are these, I could send it to you. It's these kids running uh, against like this kaleidoscope background. Okay. The difficult thing about this is I, ha- because I don't have any reference points with what I'm doing, I don't know what other people who are doing the same thing. Yeah. I, right. I have to, de- I have to kind of create the standard and create what these boundaries are and what this is. Right. And, and so what it is, is it's an attempt to bring back video art. Yeah. And, and a complete rejection against what is most per current, in current uh, times right now, binge watching is the most popular consumption way uh, for for older people. Right. The other is people watching the video, if not on Instagram, on TikTok. That's yeah. right. I, re- I read that people are consuming at least 95 minutes a day. Yeah. I, I can believe that. Yeah. That's a feature film. I mean, that, yeah. Yeah. Th- that amazes me. For sure. And then short attention spans. I know we're both fathers and we see it in our kids as yeah. young as they are even. And with what you're doing, the application specifically on social, social media and utilizing things like Instagram reels and TikTok, I think it's the perfect application. You know, you're you're able to hit those target audiences, and I think the uniqueness of your work too. I mean, it, it grabbed me immediately. You know, I, and Thank I've been you. a fan ever since, and I'm really look forward to your drops every time you have a new one. Thank you. It's 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 everything. I'll, I'll binge watch you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I, I I I'm almost up to 700 of these things, which is like almost 700 music cues. Figuring out what to do, having no yeah. idea, figuring out. What is too long? What is too short? When I first started this, I had taught filmmaking for a decade back in New York and I taught commer- spec commercials, how you make those. And so I was, I tied myself to the 15 second spot, the 30 second spot, because in traditional broadcasts, that's what, how long a commercial is. It's either going to be a 15 second spot, a 30 second spot, two 15 second spots, or if it's a Super Bowl spot, it's going to be a full minute. Right. And right. then I, I, I realized on the internet, nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Yeah. And speaking of which, in commercials, I was actually doing a deep dive on your website, and I noticed. Did you do a commercial for Coca Cola? I, I saw a. Coca- I did a spec commercial for Coca Cola okay. about. I mean, boy, 
early early aughts. I thought it was a pretty funny commercial. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that that was that that was the early aughts. Yeah, I, I think the premise was that a, a baseball came near a guy sitting on a bench, and yeah. uh, he acted like he was hit by the baseball because an attractive woman approached the bench, uh, and he was rubbing a Coca Cola on his forehead. <laughs> but uh, I thought it was I thought it was great. It's you know. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I I try to appreciate a good commercial. Thank you. That was that was old enough. We shot it on film. Nice. Now speaking of film, I would imagine I did watch your short films, Marguerite Moment, as well as Feet. And I was going to ask how Marguerite Moment, uh, in particular, was shot. That was shot on thirty-five millimeter film. We used anamorphic lenses. Okay. For that, to create that really shallow depth of field, uh, which gives you those weird kind of shapes in the background yeah. but are really next to impossible when you're shooting to actually keep everything in focus so it, <laughs> yeah yeah using that I, I learned having made that movie that using that technique which is more of like how they shot westerns it's what they call widescreen really widescreen focuses so because we i wonder why but I, they don't have film cameras shooting 35 or 60 that are autofocus. So everything's manually focused, or at least has been since the last time I, I shot film. And so it eats through your day. Yeah, I can imagine. So that was so, so that was that one. Uh, and feet, I shot on a 16 millimeter camera. Okay. And then, and then I started, sh- I switched to digital as quickly as I could. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. can imagine. Even though I, I, you know, I was, I, I'm certainly in the, the, the group with the other film snobs, but yeah, I agree. You know, ease of use. Yeah, I'm sure workflow and everything, you know, you can just kind of surmise it all into that too. You know, before we pass on Marguerite Moment too much, I did want to talk about it briefly because I did notice that you got some attention reviews from Roger Ebert. Yes. You know, and it was at 46 film festivals worldwide, I believe. You received like 12 different awards for it as well. Yeah, I, I, I think it eventually tapped out at like over... 50 plus festivals and uh it won a couple of best of fests i mean this was over how long ago was this this was over 10 years ago this is like 15 years ago it's funny what happened with feet was it originally was distributed by lloyd kaufman of trauma oh really i didn't know that and it was part of his best of trauma dance so okay if you don't know about this i I could give you a two-second tour which is that so in park city sundance comes right and and that's the big film festival or, or or has been as long as film festivals before COVID were considered a big deal. Then Slamdance came in and said, we don't care if this is your town. We're doing our own thing at the same time. Okay. <laughs> and that was like, and they discovered like paranormal activity, but that was like really punk at the time. And that was like in 97, 96, 97, they did that. Then you cut to around 2000. And everybody is walking into that town, creating their an, a competing festival. One of those was Lloyd Kaufman's Troma Dance, okay. and it played at Sundance for at least ten years. And and now he moves it around. So, anyways, he he had had my movie, but nothing much was happening with it. And I I did a recut, and at the time. When I did that recut, it was playing in more festivals than my brand new movie, my passion project, which was Magritte Moment. So it was incredibly frustrating to have an older movie get more heat than the new one because I felt, you know, this is a real new one. Right. And and this is the best version of my work because I'm older now. And, it, you know, all right. of that kind of stuff. And the lesson I learned from it, 
my mom turned to me and said, you're getting attention. Who cares from what? Sure. Fair. And that really changed it for me. It takes people to put things in perspective for you sometimes without question. Whenever I watched Marguerite Moment, like kind of just initially, some of the aesthetics, some of the editing and choices and that sort of stuff, my mind immediately went to Spun. That's a movie that I loved when I was younger. My dad let me watch it. Yeah, we rented it on VHS. Your dad let you watch that movie? Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that movie has more edits than any other film. It, it could. Jonas Ackerland, I believe, made it. Is yes, that correct? that's correct. Yeah, I believe that movie holds the record for the most edits of any movie. I believe it. I, I didn't I know that, that. But yeah, I could definitely <laughs> believe it without question. There's a lot of creative stuff going on with that. And if there's any crossover there if it was any inspiration but to me for whatever reason that's the initial like with some of the editing some of the pacing and how the film speeds up in places kind of that time lapse feel in some of the segments and the shots uh that's just kind of my immediate impression was what what i i really tried to do uh with that film at the end of the day was make a film that uh, dream logic works which is kind of like the david lynch or donnie darko the the connections make emotional sense they don't make logic sense it falls apart as soon as you think about it but it feels good it should make sense we're not we're trying to figure out why it should make sense we it's like you look you meet a stranger and they look familiar you're trying to figure that out right 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 for sure And, and 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 so so with that i really tried to do something along the lines of if you if you like if you wrote down a bullet list, A, B, C, D, you know, it, it, it doesn't really make sense, but it feels like it should, the way the music carries through and, and the imagery, in the same way like Twin Peaks doesn't yes. really make all that much sense if you break it down. But it, it, it's another thing, another show, it was one of the most influential things ever for me. That certainly sent me to film school too. Yeah, it's one of my all-time favorites. Right behind David Cronenberg, who was my favorite director of all time probably, is probably David Lynch and Stanley Kubrick's in that conversation. But yeah, Twin Peaks. And you, you won me over with that comment. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the third season? I actually have yet to watch it, to be Interesting. fair. Yeah, I've hold, I've held off on it. Uh, I was waiting for it to all to come out at once so I could binge it because I knew it was one uh-huh. of those shows that I would want to do that with. And I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But Do me a favor. Send me send me a message after you see. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I sure it will. Really, it, it really was a special show. Yeah, I, I was really looking forward to it just in, on the premise of obviously – original people returning, but right. people being involved such as, you know, David Bowie, Trent Reznor, uh, and the likes. So like that, that intrigued me as well. So I- I'm sure I'm going to love it, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to binge that at some point. My feeling, I-, I just feel, thank God I live in a world where David Lynch can return and still make film, still make his best work he has made. I mean, that year, I think that was the same year that, that, that Mad Max won the Oscar. And what you have there, you have men in their late seventies who are doing the best work they've ever done. Yeah. Right. That is awe inspiring. Oh, sure. yeah, for sure. Especially to this idea that you don't have, you know, if you haven't peaked yet at whatever age, it's still possible. These guys are doing the best work. That's another example we could use. A famous example would be George Miller as a director and the Mad Max movies, especially if you saw the more newer one, yeah. Fury Road with Tom Hardy. And there is tons of pop art elements in that movie. Yeah. It is just littered with it. And George Miller's a fantastic, I think he's a very underrated film director in general. 
And, uh, but yeah, that, that's another good example for folks. If you're listening and watching today and, and not real sure what pop art is, you made this comment earlier about, you know, that familiar face, but you can't figure it out. I thought that was really funny because it made me immediately think of the guy you had in uh, Marguerite moment. And that's Tom Noonan. Tom Noonan yeah. is an actor that's in so many things that people start to realize like, Hey, wait a minute. That guy, that looks, guy looks familiar. familiar. Right. And I also, I also think he's a guy that like gets mistaken sometimes for John Malkovich for whatever reason. Yeah. But they do have a similar look, but not exactly the same. However, uh, you know, like he's been in so much stuff, Robocop 2, Synecdote, New York, uh, Heat, Manhunter. You know, he's done work with Charlie Kaufman. He's done work with Michael Mann. So like, I got to know, how'd you get him involved in that project? Well, in New York, believe it or not, it's a smaller town than you would think. And my lead actor had a friendship with him, which opened up a channel for me to Hell yeah. pitch him for it and, and see what his interest level was. He is now the lead in that was just on uh, The Marvelous Miss Maisel, and now he's on Vegas CSI. And then the female, I, I don't know if, if you're a fan, uh, the female who plays Karen, uh, the muse, she plays Sacagawea in Night at the Museum. Oh, oh okay. really? Okay. I didn't make that connection. I thought your lead did look familiar. Uh, and I've seen a lot of positive stuff on the Mar- Marvelous Mabel or whatever the show that is. I think it's on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of good critical review around that show in particular. I also don't want to pass up on Feet, though. Okay. Feet, I love the concept. We talked about it before we got on the call. And that is just kind of the... I will say, you know, we kind of live in a, I would say predominantly, I think that's starting to change conservative nation. And, you know, there's a lot of extreme feelings with fetuses and are they alive? Are they not alive? All those controversies. And I just love the idea that, uh, especially whenever you made this, you made this in the early 2000s, right? Or at least it came out in the early 2000s. Yeah, I made it in the the end of the 90s. So like 98, I think is when I, I filmed it. So very taboo, really, even at the time that you were making this and, and kind of this concept is, of, and I highly encourage folks to check it out on ianfisher.com ian's got all of his stuff his work there right there easy for you to take a look at and feed i love it's got a lot of elements but in particular not to give a, give it away without watching it completely but uh, the, the the handbags that the ladies like inside of the short is made of uh, fetal materials so yeah do, do you want do you want me to tell you the log line of the thing yeah let's hear it. i figured out? so all right let, let me just remember this because it's been a while it's a board a board pro-life housewife Falls in love with the latest fashion trend to hit Manhattan. Fetal skin purses. I got to commend you too on the intentional, I'm sure, costuming of the shop merchant who looks uncannily like anti-LaVey to an extent. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, So really, I'm just grateful I didn't mess it up. It, It really started with the short story from F. Paul Wilson. Now... Horror fans will know him because his book, The Keep, was adapted by Michael Mann into the movie The Keep, uh, okay. which people seem to like. It's a tangerine dream, you know, scored film by Michael right. Mann, who's, you know, a, a real technician, a beautiful artist as well, Michael Mann. Absolutely. But, but anyway, so I found the short film, uh, I found the short story. And I remember falling in love with it. So I tracked him down at a book signing and just asked his permission to be able to make it. And he oh, was wow. cool enough and said, sure. That's awesome. Very cool. And, and he actually is is the, he is in, for fans of him who know of him, uh, who really love horror, 
uh, he's actually in the movie as one of the people eating. Okay. In the background? In the background, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I that love when cool. they do that. But that was a film I actually, I returned the equipment to my film school the day I graduated, right after I'd finished shooting that. <laughs> hey, talk about perfect timing, huh? Right. <laughs> That's awesome. And some of your other work, too, I wanted to talk with you about, and you've mentioned it a few times here, too, Rude Dude, the Steve Rude story. Yeah. You know, Steve Rude, also a awesome pop artist himself, and uh, he did some work with Dave Gibbons right at the toward the end of the 80s, early 90s, I believe it was. And yeah, the world's finest. He is a fantastic artist. I likened his art to, to an extent. If anybody's seen like Alex Ross and, uh, but he, he's famous specifically for Steve Rude, that is, uh, the creation of Nexus. And so a lot of people might remember that, uh, I believe it was on Dark Horse in the eighties. It's a DC property and had a very successful run and it has a huge cult phenomenon behind it. Even nowadays, I know that you had the pleasure of, of doing that documentary and covering him in particular. How did that project come together? I grew up a enormous fan of Steve Rude to the point, let's see, I discovered him maybe at, at, at 15. I, I, na- I named my dog Horatio after Nexus. That's cool. <laughs> I, I was such a huge fan. And those world's finest posters, the Batman, Superman, and the two of them, I had those over my bed in college for many, many years, uh, this guy really inspired me. And before the internet, something filmmakers like I did, or at least maybe I'm the only one who did it, but I would get people's addresses and start a correspondence, a mail correspondence. This is before we had email, really. And, uh, or email had, had, was something people hadn't fully adopted yet. Right. And I befriended him and I would send him my movies. And so I, once I finished Magritte Moment, I wanted my next level. And, and at the time, it was doing a feature. It's since changed, but at the time I had done this. So my thinking, I started doing that feature around 2008. So ar- around that time, that was the common, common feeling like, you know, you do shorts, but that's only to get you to features. Right. You know, it's, it's, it, you know, you don't want to stay with shorts too long. Uh, sure. Was the common thinking. So I, my next leveling up was making a feature, even though it was a documentary. And so I pitched him. It took a, a lot of ups and downs, but it eventually happened. And, and it was a tough film because uh, it also focuses on, on his uh, bipolar disorder and all that stuff. Sure. And one thing I, I try, I, I, I promised myself two things. One was I wasn't going to make that commercial for the artist about how they're so great um, and they changed the industry with their work ethic and this and that, like a lot of the uh, comic book document comic book artisans writers, creators. It's a tired trope. It, it is. It, and I just couldn't do that. I, we both used crumb as our kind of go-to. And leaning in on that, I, I also was a little bit of an art film I got to make on my favorite artist, which was something. But it was something that led me to now, which is I got lost in, because I was the editor. And, 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 and so 
I, I come from a fiction world. In a fiction world, you know what you're doing. You have your sure. plan. You know what the script is. You know the lines. You know the coverage. Right. And when you're doing a documentary, it's almost like you're in the middle of a hurricane and you're just pointing your camera, hoping you get something livable, that, that something in focus, something usable. You don't even know what you have until you look at it a day or two later. Right. And, and then you got to kind of, you, you look at this chaos that you have, which is your raw footage, which anyone who wants to imagine it, just look at your cell phone and trying to film your friend's birthday party. There's a lot of stuff you want to get rid of. Yeah. <laughs> but you're, you're trying to kind of take a hammer and beat all that footage into some kind of digestible three act structure. And, and, and the real world does not work that way. Right. right. That's why we like movies, because movies give us the real world in a three-act structure, hopefully with a happy resolution at the end so we can move on with our lives. Yeah, and I would imagine that some of it, you know, I even took time to watch some of the behind-the-scenes clips that you had up on your website in particular. <laughs> oh, boy. Some of his manic episodes and things of that ilk. Like, I, I'm sure that you were a company to some things that hit the editing floor, too, that were kind of interesting, too. And, you know, you go into a movie like that, and, you know, he's a guy, too, that, again, as you mentioned earlier, he's known for his bipolar disorder as well. Sometimes you go into watching a, a documentary like that, and you're concerned that it's going to be like a PSA for mental health. Not to say that people shouldn't get right. help with their mental health, but your your documentaries sometimes have agendas. You know what I mean? Totally. There's filmmakers for good and for bad that employ those agendas, you know, kind of an easy example to use for a lot of people who are familiar with is like Michael Moore, for example. Like in his documentaries, he has his little comedic bits that he puts in sometimes, like the 9-11 documentary, for example, you could go back to that. I think you played it relatively straight with the Steve Root story, even though that you did have some artistic flair to it. I tried to do a fly in the wall and just let him tell the story without manipulating it. And that's right. I, I actually found I, I spent a lot of time sanitizing it to make the footage more and the story more digestible because there's some outrageous stuff that happens in it that that <laughs> had me questioning reality. <laughs> and, and it certainly didn't help being the person for two years staring at the footage. No, I'm sure that... Of, of a manically a bipolar person who, who has some toxic, personal toxicity it, uh, and some great beauty, it, it's, it just... It gets to be a lot to deal with for two years. I was so grateful to be done. I could imagine, yeah. And whenever you're that close to any material and spending that much time with it, there's probably a level of resentment that starts to build up over time. Yeah, but you know, in that movie, we have Alex Ross in it. Uh, I interviewed him. I Dave Gibbons is in it as well. These guys are all in love with this classic kind of 1940s illustration aesthetic of this Andrew Loomis which is much more that kind of more fit body and yeah. not that, you know, enormously hulked out every vein out. Yeah. <laughs> or, or who a Frank Miller type of more cartoony thing. On the subject of comic books and, and what have you, I, I noticed a trailer out that was still yet being edited, I guess, for Superhero Nation. Is that the project that you alerted to earlier that was impacted by COVID and kind of changed yes. your perspective on things? It absolutely did. Well, the, the documentary itself, which, which was exploring the popularity of superheroes in America and what it says about American culture, it started where I was questioning, why am I still interested in these characters? And, and this is before 
everybody in the world would walk around with the characters on their t-shirts. I mean, I remember wearing those in the 90s when, when you know, you, you'd almost get beaten up for wearing yeah. that stuff. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that would be like, you know, the biggest thing was John Bon Jovi had a Superman tattoo, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Or Shaq had one. But like, that's as far as that, pure, it went into the culture. So I was curious as to why I was still into these characters. And what I wanted to do is is understand, so what does it say about our culture that, that it's such a big deal? And so I went and I interviewed over 100 of the experts, uh, some who are no longer with us, Stan Lee, you know, Frank Miller, Grant Morrison, Jerry Robinson. I mean, all these different people to find out, well... What does it say that that we, as a culture, look up to these things? And it, it, it it's very interesting. It, it bottom lines that you know because we're a young culture, unlike Europe, and and we've made it up. Sure. And it kind of embraces this kind of larger than life mythology we have of each other. You know what? Like in the fifties, you know, it was cowboys. And, 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 and like, that's what the kids were into back then. That was cool. And then, you know, once war, you know, came back in the 70s, it was no longer cool. Uh, but, you know, the idea of why these characters, and if you think about it, there's some scary implications about what we like, which is we like figures who point the way and say, this is right, this is wrong, do this, do that. Uh, they're easily identifiable using iconic either looks or colors, usually the primary, because that's how they were printed. They make decisions for us. As, as, while they save us, they also save us from making a lot of decisions. And this idea, which is no longer, I believe, is popular, I guess it's no longer modern, but, but a key part of it really was that secret identity. Sure. Which was this whole idea of if they could only see who I really was, which would be like Superman taking the glasses off, right? Sure. If you look at like, that's popular and we really enjoy that stuff. You see that like things like social media and Twitter running, jumping onto the loudest voice to beat up essentially total strangers that you don't know who they are. You're never going to meet them. You're never going to cross paths with them. But you gotta like add, hold on to that fire hose of hate, or even our last president. I mean, these are very iconic looking people who are about a brand, right, 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 right. and those are very attractive things to America. We want to be, we want to be famous, and and what is having your own icon or being like a one name, like Elvis. Right, right, right. Or Rihanna. I mean, that's like, or Madonna. That's like, I think for most people, that's the utmost of the utmost of what, you know, you could do in America. Yeah, without question. Whereas, uh, you know, in the rest of the world, you know, they're just making sure they have enough shots to help them from, you know, the next wave of COVID or or whatever is horrible going on. To hammer down a little bit more on the superhero talk too, I think a lot of the appeal is that idea of the American dream in some respects. And that is, you know, the nice house, the two car garage, that sort of thing. And because we 
get to live a privileged life. A lot of us here in America, we have it much better than a lot, the majority of other countries, even though, yes, we're a young nation. We're looked to as the example globally in some respects. You know, anytime that there's a global affair going on, everybody looks to America for leadership in, in some respects. We have painted ourselves in, our, in a corner in some respects to make us the hero. And I think that that's a part of the obsession with it as well, is that people aspire to be that too. It, it's, and it's not a bad thing by any means, but you know, it, in a way, it's almost given us an overinflated sense of self in some respects too, I think. Absolutely. And that's, that's a lot of the resentment that people have in America, for America, that is. But, but think of it this way. With, with Hollywood and, and even just w- with our ownership of, of IP, superheroes, cartoons, Simpsons, Disney, all that stuff, what we are, we make the coolest culture. That's sure. really what we have. It's no longer uh, our education. It, it's it's no longer right. you know necessarily the internet. It, we make the coolest culture. We make the music. I mean, there there are there's amazing stuff all over the world, of course, but in most people's heads, in in in, in the world, this full globe, you know, you got to be known in America to break out everywhere else. Right, right. Just being an English sensation or an African sensation. I mean, that's amazing as it is. I mean, if you think about it, having a whole country know who you are, amazing, right? Sure. But that's not breaking out in this Kim Kardashian explosion of a cottage industry just blurps up out of social media. I mean, it, I mean, through a lot of hard work, obviously, and, and, and a lot of managing and brilliance. But to most people, they, you know, we don't see that part. We just see, wow, that's what famous is now. I've heard over the years that America's biggest resource now has become entertainment. Yeah, that's our biggest global output is entertainment. And, you know, I, I think that there's a solid argument for that. It's back to your point. That is what we're known for nowadays. And I know like the entertainment aspect of things, of course, gets implemented into other areas. So like, for example, even with your work, I know that you're involved with uh, music against um, Milioma. Is that correct? Myeloma. Myeloma. Yeah. And now, what is your involvement there outside of hosting? I, do, you, do you actually do the trailers and the ads or the reels for that? Or I, we, we did. I did their Indiegogo pitch video years ago. A good friend of mine, Slava Rubin, is the one who created that fundraiser uh, because he had lost his father, Uh, Myeloma. Anymore, too, to get attention on such projects such as this, too. You know, you have to implement an element of entertainment, too. You know, like I, you know, when it comes to like kind of the ad campaigns and stuff to grab people's attention. Right. You have to grab people with entertainment, even if it's for a cause or whatever it might be. That's the cough syrup. Yeah, exactly. Exactly correct. And, you know, so there's a lot of good that I say that to say this, though, there's a lot of good that entertainment brings outside of just, you know, individual satisfaction and, and that sort of thing. You know, it goes on to inspire people. 
people like in your case, people in my case. That's the reason that I do this is I try to be a springboard for other people, their talents, get exposure to them. Because I would have loved to have this resource in my younger years. Absolutely. You know, not to say that I'm that old, but you know, I'm getting close to 40 now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, back whenever I was in high school and, and gigging and stuff, I, I wish there would have been somebody like, hey, come on my show and tell me about your band. I would have just died. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would have thought I hit it big time without question. You know, <laughs> I think it's great what you're doing. Well, I appreciate it. We appreciate it. it. Yeah, Yeah. we really appreciate it. Sure. And we're certainly a fan of you and uh, Ian and everything that you're doing. Well, thank you so much. What what should people expect from you present day outside of the daily social media reels? You got anything else in the works you can tell us about? I I, literally, I am focusing on that. I I I attempting to to kind of. I'm still figuring out exactly what it is, but I'm calling the micros. I'm literally trying to make this a legitimate art form. In 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 such a way that in LA, I mean, you're you're looking at five years if you're lucky for a project, and it it just and that's why so many people have to have so many going at so many times, and then also make a living and also do their own thing. And I think with this, I I think with what you were talking about, father, right? You're both are fathers, yeah. and and we're noticing attention spans changing and we're noticing how people consume media and i just have the feeling that we're going to see shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and people are going to want more anthology like entertainment sure than movies because you know what this is what what changed my whole thinking and really kind of had me kind of divert from my lifelong goal of you got to make that feature. You know, I wanted, I, I want to make my horror feature. What really changed it was Frank Darabont. You know who that is? Yes, I do. So, so that filmmaker uh, was doing a podcast and, and what he had said was that movies are the great 20th century art form. But the problem is we're in the 21st century. Right. Yeah. And so with that, with this this idea that that it's no longer the equipment it's no longer the distribution that makes our filmmaking any more unique than china's than canada's than anywhere else and it, it, there was a point where we had the the best technician right we were the world leader of this and 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 the other countries needed america's movies and they no longer do right. correct their their work is just as wonderful as, as, as some of our best work. Absolutely. It really comes down to when, so if movies are dying out as that art form, what we really have is streaming TV. And so then, and really what it is, is we no longer have a music video. Sure. Industry or art form in the way that we had in the 80s, 90s, and early aughts. Right, right, right. And, and it's really, you know, after Napster came and changed that industry, there's just no budget. And so with no budget, pe- no, but that was where a lot of the kind of uh, experimental and a lot of pop art was being done. And there's a lot of crossover with music videos and commercials and that sort of stuff, particularly when they were, they were taking off too. And essentially a music video is a commercial for your album. I mean, I mean, what what better tool is there? to peep into the you know soul or the essence of an artist other than a music video 
Absolutely. You know, I know that to me drew me, you know, I, I grew up in still yet was pretty decent, you know, late eighties and nineties. A lot of music videos were popular at that time. TRL was a huge thing. Yeah. Totally. In my teenage lives. years. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, th- those, those brought me to buying albums like Blink-182 and Limp Bizkit <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that. You know, those music videos, Corn, yeah. for example, like whenever you're a teenager and you see stuff like that, you're like, oh my God, my parents are going to hate this. I love it. <laughs> right. It's a rebellion thing. <laughs> you know, right. uh, they were also great, you know, test runs for some of our favorite directors sure. out there. David Fincher and, and Spike Jones yep. and, and Michelle Gondry and, and all these people. And it's without that. Now, the only other way that we're going to see this done is people doing it, paying for it themselves and putting it on social media. And it's kind of gone back into the short game too. like shorts. I don't, I don't want to say like they're more popular than ever, but uh, that statement might be true, but I know that I'm seeing a lot more shorts access to shorts nowadays compared to, you know, I wasn't even aware of shorts until probably my teenage years in general, what they were, ever got my hands on one. Uh, You know, sometimes you would get a short paired with a VHS that you would purchase, like it was either at the beginning of a movie or at the end of the movie or something like that. Or, and, and, you know, nowadays YouTube, obviously very accessible to people. That's where a lot of people have their shorts are hosted at, you know, there are film festivals specifically for shorts. Uh, we have a friend, previous guest on the show, Douglas Wicker. He had a short that premiered at the Chatt- Chattanooga Film Festival. They just did a festival up here in St. Louis for short films too. Like I think shorts are actually starting to get some attention that it used to not have 30 years ago. Are you seeing that from your perspective out there on the East Coast, Ian? Uh, yes, and I, I believe especially as this new generation is growing up with a cell phone out of the womb, <laughs> sure, already logged into YouTube or onto TikTok, their brains are going to work in a different way than 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 ours, even ours do just because of the way they process information. And as we're seeing, as a lot of the streaming is kind of hitting a wall, you know, and these companies are trying to, because it's the Wild West, everyone's figuring out what they want. Right. Who's going to put what money into what? What we're, as everyone's pulling back, the, the one untapped resource we have is literally, let's say even just from the 90s. And, and, and that's... We could go even further back, but let's just say from the 90s, you have over 32 years, thousands upon thousands of hours of everyone's short film sitting there doing nothing. Mm-hmm. No one's watching it. It's all this stuff that somebody should be monetizing. And, and, and there will be savvier businessmen than me who will figure out the best way to do it. Other people have tried, but with that much free already there, it's almost like like a huge reservoir of like uh, natural gas that they have yet to like actually tap to to drill out and and all that. Absolutely. And the idea that you know when I went to film school and and and, and a big part of film school. I would say until about 2004 really was access to equipment, right? I mean, a film camera was hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and, you know, you weren't going to like, you weren't going to lend if a cinematographer had the loans together to have a super 16 camera, 
they were not lending that out to their friends to shoot their thesis film. I mean, <laughs> those cameras were very $200,000. It was very expensive. But since the iPhone, and then as soon as, as people had a full uh, film studio in their pocket, that changed the game. And that really meant you, you really, if you had a cell phone, you no longer had any excuse. Sure. Right. I mean, before you could, you could, you know, I can't get the $500 to get a video camera. Okay. All right. There's still a hurdle. Understood. And then what do I do with the videotape? I don't know how to edit it. I, I, it's too many steps. At this point with your cell phone, there's no excuse. Right, right. Even if you don't know how to do it, you can look up a YouTube video and figure out how to do it in five right. minutes. I mean, it's, it's how I learned after every resource is there. YouTube. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the way to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had to take a class to learn After Effects. Right. And, 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 and that was like in 2001. So that was before YouTube was a big thing. I wish I could have learned it from the safety of my home, you know? Yeah. I right. mean, that's the best way. <laughs> right. Right. And I know, like, the first time I heard of, like, films actually even being shot on cell phones was just blew my mind. I think it was, like, in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Park Chan-wook had set out to film an entire film on iPhone at the time. Yeah, and he I did. Like, did you see and it? He did, yes. And, I mean, you can't – you couldn't tell that it was all shot on an iPhone, really, to – to an extent, especially if you're a fan of just like kind of independent films and that sort of stuff, like the quality's there, you know, pretty on par with that. And yeah, I just, it blew my mind at the time. Yeah. I was just like, you know, if he can do it, then I could do it. I have an iPhone, you know, and yeah. it kind of inspired me to do things here and there. Like some, some of my friends and I would do like little stop motion stuff with figurines and stuff, just kind of play around. That's great. But yeah, you know, so if anybody's listening to this today, Hopefully, if you ever had that thought in your mind, well, how do I even achieve a dream like this? You know, know that it's it's doable and it's accessible. And share it on social media. There, Absolutely. Literally, when I got started, there was nowhere to show this work. Right. You would have to beg people, hand them your videotapes, you know, please take a look at my short film. It, there was nothing because there was no internet. And once the, it took a while, it took a while for the internet. Uh, I, I worked in like 99 and 2000 in that web 2.0 bubble in New York. And we were, we were doing video back then trying to get it across, you know, the modems and all that. And the infrastructure was not there. There was nowhere to put, to, to show up, to look at this stuff. Right. The thing is now, even if you don't want YouTube, you can find people who are making huge livings monetizing either their artwork or becoming influencers, which is a whole different way of thinking about life, uh, which, yeah, sure. you know, I, I'm not prepared to do, uh, but <laughs> God bless them. I hear you. Uh, but, but that you. idea that you can make a living just through, well, I could say either Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Elon Musk, or the Chinese government. But yeah. any of those ways are ways that you can create a career. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. And Ian, you've been so generous with your time today. Before you get off here, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a few rapid fire random questions just to peel back the curtain a little bit, get your personality out there with our audience, familiarize you with our fan base. Sure, man. And uh, I'm just going to start with this funny one for you. If you've been given the death sentence, what's your final meal? Damn, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's one I struggle with to this day. Uh, you know what? Because uh, I've 
been in LA for the last couple of years. I say an In and Out Burger. There you there go. go. Hey, man, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Burger. Why not? Hell yeah. Uh, what's your go to karaoke song? Oh, man. Uh, Suspicious Minds. Okay. Elvis. There Heck you go. Yeah. There you go. Nothing wrong with that. What would you consider to be the most overrated film of all time? And please piss somebody off with this, <laughs> with this statement. I love it. I love when that happens. <laughs> the most overrated movie. Yeah, that's a tough one, too. Wow. Uh, I would say Transformers. Okay, that's a, that's a that's fair a one. That's a fair one, yeah. Yeah. And I love Michael Bay. I, I really do. Because for what moments. he does, he is a genius. For what he does. Yeah. Sure. Right, right, right. No one outdoes him. Explosions, right? <laughs> On the iconic... Uh, hero 360 shot that he does too. I, I love that, but it's that idea of authorship, which is uh, which is a controversial subject. But the idea of is the director the author? Can you can you watch one uh, one scene for two minutes and know who that director is, either by the music, the way the framing Fair is, enough. the way the actors are going, what's happening, uh, what kind of shot structure and language they use and there are very few that actually pull that off sam raimi yeah he's one of them absolutely cronenberg absolutely absolutely cronenberg absolutely panos cosmatos you know there there are people john carpenter now he no longer is making movies but when he did and you heard his score you knew that was his damn movie without question and so that idea of like like you've mentioned Warhol. Well, you know what a Warhol is when you see it. Sure. And in this world where everything is now kind of being fudged together by an AI program that's scraping all the other artists' stuff, right? Yeah. And it's right. all kind of going to look like the same. Homogenized thing. Plastic surgery victim in yeah. LA. All the same. <laughs> you know, this idea of an individual signature that that is... Uh, in rebellion to everything looking the same and everything being like, you know, looking so, I guess my point is that not every superhero movie needs to look like a Marvel superhero movie. Sure. Right. Let's sure. make a superhero movie in the Richard Donner universe. Let's make him in other universes and see what they look like. Not everyone has to look like a Zack Snyder one either, you know, but right, I like right. that they have both versions, right? We, I like the different flavors, but uh, yes. So it's funny that you brought up Transformers and we got on a little side tangent about Michael Bay. And, you know, to your point, you know, it's a Michael Bay film. If anybody saw Family Guy, whenever they did the <laughs> Michael Bay spoof and uh, within the first 30 seconds, you knew it was they were imitating Michael Bay, <laughs> you know, the big, robust body sweating. A lot of sexuality, yeah. like, you know, and yeah. uh, a lot of action, big explosions. Like, you knew that was Michael Bay immediately that they were spoofing on. <laughs> well, I, I'll, t- I'll tell you real quick what's interesting. That first movie, and I've told people this, you know, because Spielberg also produced it, right? Yeah. So, so that was a weirdly balanced movie where it starts off as an adult movie. Like those Transformers, like if they're popping out of, of, uh, of the desert, they're going to hurt you. People get hurt in that movie. That's not like kids get out of jail free card. Everyone gets hurt. That's an adult movie, right? Sure. And that, I think that was the Michael Bay part. But then when it becomes about Shia LaBeouf is the only person who can save the universe, 
And it's up to him to grab that, whatever they called it, that dark star, whatever it yeah. was. But it's literally him grabbing the football. That is a right. kid's movie. Right. And the reason why that movie's overhyped is it couldn't decide which it wanted to be. No, right? I agree. And that that's that's I believe it's because of having such uh, such forceful, amazing uh, artists like Michael Bay and like Steven Spielberg. And here, it just kind of didn't level up properly. No, that makes so sense. A fil- so, so films like that, I, I think, are overrated. Yeah. For sure. uh, on to another question. What would you consider your favorite vacation spot? Uh, let's see. My favorite vacation spot... I'm going to have to go with, I had a, an, a magical time in Amsterdam once. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. I'd love to go there. You fellas ever been? No, no, no we have never not. been. I would like to go. It, 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 it was, it was pretty magical. <laughs> yeah. I bet that is. <laughs> I have to get there whenever I can. I, I recommend it. Humanity will eventually meet its demise. What will it be for? What do you think will cause humanity's demise, Ian? <laughs> You know, I was just talking about this the other day. I honestly think this run, uh, you know, we've run out of Adderall in this country. <laughs> it, it's serious. No, I, I, it's it's t- totally serious. And so the idea of unmedicated people. Sure. Being in charge of like airport security, anything, it, it terrifies me. Yeah. I, I honestly, I think it's going to be something like that that we've been medicating and keeping going and it's going to run out. I the mean, rug gets swept out from under us. Yeah. I, I don't think it's going to be COVID because we, we have shown to be remarkably resilient with that so far. Uh, we're still here. Right. right. But I'm worried about the next one. Sure. And yeah. if people are like this angry about this one and about whether they're going to, you know, it, it just, it's a very, different reaction than world war two where everybody like went and like worked in the factories and everyone bought war bonds and everyone, you know, sacrificed for sure. the greater good. Now it's more like, screw you. I got to get mine. And it's just where our culture is differently. Yeah. And I believe that is the negative part of social media. Sure. Whereas what I, I'm doing it, with mine is 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 using social media to kind of you know get a smile a day from somebody yeah, or for sure. i use it i use like some of it is tr- a trojan horse to to like inject the viewer with some art right yeah, you know sure. wrapped around captain america there might be something there yeah for sure, sure. no i yeah. agree what would you consider to be the most underrated film of all time what's a film that you'd champion in that department the verdict I think is one of okay. the greatest movies ever made. Yeah, great acting in it, without question. That's it. That's in my top three. It's most people consider that screenplay by David Mamet to be the definition of the perfectly structured screenplay and one of the best screenplays ever written. And something I, as a screenplay teacher, and many other screenplay teachers usually refer to. It's usually that screenplay and witness that people always refer to as the the people who can see the world through structure look at that as those two films as things of beauty in a way even I can't comprehend 
If you were to be trapped on a desert island, let's assume you have the necessities, <laughs> so drinkable water, uh, the ability to hunt, trap, catch food, that sort of thing, get your sustenance. What's the one item recreationally that you're bringing? <laughs> I mean, uh, the problem is, like I say, my cell phone, but maybe the power supply would die out. Uh, yeah. You know what I would do? I would bring a, a col- I would have to bring a book because that would be the only thing I could refer back to. I would bring an art book with me. Okay. What I have realized is that visually being able to look at something is what, what activates like my imagination or my memory in a way that I think reading a sentence for other people activates them to be able to get to where they, it's just a different types of brains. Okay. So, so something like that. I mean, I, I, I'm going to go through like this Gilbert and George art book. I was exposed to at about 10. Uh, I, I found it again and to look at what these people did and, and to figure out like what did inspire me. Cause I know it really inspired me looking at their work. I'm like, Holy damn. Okay, I see it now. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know is how it seeped in in such a place at such an early age that, you know, I'm still trying to figure out, well, what exactly did hit me? What was it? Yeah, what caught you? Right. Well, that's a cool answer, too, in the sense that if you are trapped on a desert island in this hypothetical situation, it gives you the ability to yet again be inspired and occupy your time with either your thoughts or your creativity or whatever the case may be. So I can't say that I've heard that response too many times. So that's, that's kind of cool. Well, if I brought my computer, it would die out, right? I, mean, right. I don't have an right. endless source of power, right? Right. right. Or, or is that right? Okay. Yeah. No, no it's, it's a good thought for sure. And uh, last but not least, what if you a dream project, money's not an object, time's not an obstacle. What's your dream project? I want to make a horror feature. Okay. And I want to do something within a specific genre. So either it would be a satanic panic 70s. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. uh, uh, run from the devil type of thing or like devil's reign. Yeah. You yeah. got that. Or then there hasn't really been an amazing like slasher camper thing since like maybe what? I, I don't even know, but if they stopped making those. One of those teenage slasher type movies would be amazing. Like something along those lines is what I'd really love to make. Yeah, there's been a few made recently, but they've been very few and far between and a lot of hit and miss. Like they've been really bad on the this kick of like remakes and stuff in particular, but like a newer, uh, more independent one that I saw that I actually enjoyed, it was uh, Final Girls. That was a pretty decent one. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty fun one without question. A lot of people talk about Terrifier. I haven't gotten around to watching that yet, but a lot of positive, especially around the most recent <laughs> Terrifier that came out this year. I think that thing was made for like 500 grand and it's made multi-millions of dollars in excess of what its budget was. It shows there's hope for independent film. Yeah. You know, which is amazing that, that they have that. But both of those films are fantastic. I, I, I personally, now that music videos are gone and, 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 I what what I believe is the only place for experimentation really is in the horror genre. Yeah. That's the only place you really have that freedom. You don't have it in superhero movies, you don't have it. I mean, animation is its own thing. Sure. So, I mean, it's really that is the only place is low budget horror movies and and you know, the thing is they're so cheap to make. Right. If you can make it well enough. I mean, do you know that 
Horror movies do best during times of war or economic strife. I guess I didn't know that, but it makes sense. And so the idea behind that is when we as a culture are really stressed out and we're like being squeezed, yeah. we need to go into a movie theater or or at least watch. I mean, I, I'm showing my age by saying movie theater, but <laughs> we would ha- we would go into movie theaters and by confronting through watching a horror movie and screaming and, and, and shrieking and all that, we released all that tension we had because the economy's so bad and all oh, this wars going on and, and all that stuff's happening. And so those movies do really well during that time. Now, these are some of the darkest times I've ever seen. I mean, with COVID, with, 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 with politics, with, with, with this country, everything. So I can only imagine how successful you know, the next great horror movie could be. The potential it has. It's funny that you say that where you see some of the experimentation nowadays taking place is mostly through horror and some of the subgenres. Like, I'll say one of the more original films that I've seen in the last few years was It Follows. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and the idea of, as simple as the idea was, you would have thought that perhaps it had been already thought of in some respects in the sense that there was a, a horror essentially tied to, that it was sexually transmissible. You would think, you know, oh, that seems like somebody should have already made that movie, but right. nobody did and certainly made it well. Uh, that, that also had a fantastic score with it too. That's another prominent thing that sticks out to me. Uh, almost Carpenter-esque at time with the synths and that sort of thing. I also feel like, you know, Panos himself as a director too. We mentioned him earlier. He's another director that's kind of revolutionary in some respect. The Babadook, I felt like was a pretty Jennifer Kent movie that was relatively another movie that was kind of outside the box in anything coming out recently in horror. So, uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. That's a great one. It, absolutely. That's another great one for sure. Well, we'll see what we can do to get you that, that infinite budget and infinite time so you can make thank that you. feature. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, we thank you so much today for your time. Gentlemen, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Fantastic yes. sport. And we hope to stay in touch with you even after this. And Absolutely. Please do. Look forward to your drop tomorrow and every day after that. I You got a fan here. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Take care. Stay yes, safe. You too, sir. Thank, thank you so you much. Very much. you all for sticking around after the break thank you so much to ian for your time today what a great guest man ian fisher folks check out ianfisher.com for all the great things that ian's doing out there explore his craft his talents his short films are not real long we mentioned them marguerite moment yeah as well as feet those are great examples of his work but i highly suggest people to check him out on his instagram as well as his tiktok where he's putting those daily posts up that we've been talking about throughout the show his aesthetic his pop art aesthetic is just amazing and also rude dude the steve rude story the steve rude story is available on amazon prime for rent it is well worth watching it's an insight into steve rude the artist famous comic book artist and creator and it explores just kind of who that guy is his talents his work as well as what it is to be a manic 
depressive. Yeah. And yeah. some of the challenges that come with that. And some mental of those, health in general. I mean, we all know question. somebody that struggles with mental health. So And Ian approaches it in a way that's very fly on the wall, as he mentioned. And that's really how documentaries should be. Right. You know, right. they shouldn't be influenced with personal opinion and that sort of stuff. Or at least those are the ones I enjoy. And those are the ones that I recommend to people. So we had a highly detailed conversation and Ian got into, you know, his inspirations and things like that, too. And we hope that you guys even go check out that stuff, too. And and that might inspire you to do things in an artistic fashion yourself. So we're going to lay the groundwork, as we mentioned in the open of the show, for kind of what's coming up uh, in the future. But before we get to that, we mentioned that we're going to have a classic drop next week. And actually, that drop is going to be just the audio drop of Waxing On Episode 1, so you guys have an idea of what Waxing On's about here on the main podcast feed. Yeah, give us some uh, more exposure and get you guys to listen to that. And of course, we link up Waxing On with RJ in our comments of our episodes So you guys can hop to that playlist directly. Ridge and Jake Jackson, the brothers, are taking that over and are really doing a fantastic job creating more content. They've been pretty much, I'd say, about every two to three weeks putting out a new episode with some music recommendations and picks for folks. Which I freaking love because, like, I'm so out of the loop, dude. And those guys are like, even you, you guys are on on your shit with that, so. People get tired of... Depending on the algorithm to recommend stuff because, you know, that, that gets a little stale, you know. Oh, dude, Sometimes my recommendations out of the are bad lately. We're just going to get a little bit more exposure and spotlight on the waxing on, and that's going to elude me into some of what we have going on in the future. But, of course, next week we're going to be taking the week off with this uh, audio drop specifically because it's Thanksgiving, and I can't not say how much I thank the audience and all the people that listens to this show, the feedback that we get. The random messages that I get, like, you know, hey, I really love the episode this week. You know, recommendations. Even right. we get on subjects and, and talks and sometimes side tangents on the show that hits the audio drops. And then I have listeners engage with me like, hey, you should have talked about this and that. And, you know, it, it really provokes further thought and exploration of things that, you know, I end up finding up that I like. So that, that's what I like about this. This is a conversation that we're having with people, our guests the audience. This is just a huge information find. This is kind of like a college course on life in some respects to me, yeah. you know, doing this show. Yeah. I learned so much from our guests, from our audience, and just that information exchange. I relish it personally. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just really thankful for our audience. I'm really thankful for the ability and the time to do this. I'm thankful that our, our wives yeah. are cooperative <laughs> in allowing us doing to do so. Thankful for the guests taking the time out of their busy lives to come on and make our show something too. You know what I mean? Like we've had Without some question. we've had some amazing guests for our first year. So <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to see where we go. We just want to take the time to thank everybody as as is tradition and in, in the spirit of the season. Let's talk about what we have for the rest of the year so we already mentioned next week is our quote-unquote classic drop which is going to be waxing on episode one the audio drop as you guys know that's just a video show that is exclusive to the ati podcast youtube channel where we're making those obscure musical picks for you guys and recommendations and dropping them on there episode 45 we're going to have a professional wrestler slammer on the show on episode 46 we're going to have artist maxine 13 who we've talked about a few times here on the show which she's fantastic she's done some amazing artwork as we mentioned before she did some work with four hands and did those pinup girl labels she's an amazing artist she did the artwork for the from dust till dawn event that took place up at pops that we that all poster went to, was incredible the grandel wrestling promotion does do commission 
thesis. I believe that she already has a notice out that she's filled up on commissions for this year, but if you're looking for something for next year, after first of the year, reach out to her. And then Benjamin Trust, another professional wrestler that we're going to have here on the show. Following that, this is going to be our kind of our closing program for the year in Series 1, and that's going to be... Episode 48 is going to be our top albums of 2022, and this is a collaboration with Waxing On RJ. So that's going to be myself, Ridge Jackson, and Jake Jackson, and we're going to do our favorite albums of the year. So we're going to make some recommendations for you guys, but we're not going to keep it stale. We're going to do some fun stuff like call out our favorite live show that we attended this year. We're going to pick out our disappointing album of the year. We're going to call out our favorite single from the year. So we're going to bring kind of a mixed bag variety to it, and I'm sure a lot of laughs and good times will be had as well. (laughs) It's going to be a dual drop. It's going to be a waxing on video drop, and then we're also going to have an audio drop for the podcast. So episode 49 is going to be our favorite films of 2022, and we're going to be bringing back guests Danny King and Douglas Wicker. So Bringing back the round table. It's just going to be us as well as Brandon Stewart's going to be coming back. Mr. Nobnard, a.k.a. Whole Boy, as you all know from Nobnard's Closet and routine contributor here on the podcast, and Ed Oz Imperius Emporium as well. His shop where he does the custom D&D figurines and support that artwork too, folks, and custom dioramas, don't forget. We're going to do our five favorite films of 2022, and we're going to do some fun stuff there too. We're going to call out our flop of the year, maybe our favorite actor or actress, make our arguments. And then episode 50 is going to be a top TV shows or series of 2022. And on that episode, it's going to be Josh, myself, and Brandon hosting that one. Episode 51 is going to be a wrestling 2022 recap as well as a Royal Rumble preview with Jake Jackson, that is, who we've had for every pro wrestling related episode outside of our interviews with wrestlers. We're going to talk about our favorite matches and feuds from the year, our favorite wrestlers from the year, try and put a bow on 2022 in wrestling, and then just kind of look down what's predicted for the match card for Royal Rumble, make some predictions there. And then we're going to close out with an ATI podcast special. So I actually didn't tell Josh about this yet. I actually went through and found our pilot episode from 2010. Oh, nice. And I remastered some of the audio, so it's a little bit more listenable this is back before we even really had mics we were just like recording with a room mic together i've edited in such a fashion that it is listenable it's we basically talk about why we're doing the show our inspirations and then get into some funny local stories at the time which some of which i forgot about entirely which oh man are still funny i'm excited to hear them now yeah (laughs) so that's gonna drop as well as an appearance that i had some excerpts from an appearance that i had on my podcast as well where i talked about whenever we first relaunched this podcast and inspirations for doing so and some of the behind the scenes conversations so it's kind of a a super cut episode about inspirations peeling back the curtain further to get us a little bit more intimately integrated with our audience and understand why we do this and so i think that's going to close out season one pretty strong and then we're going to be starting season two of february 2023 so we started this in january of 2022 it'll be a full year and our very first guest on season two is going to be rusty leonard now you might recall that name that man is famous around here you better know who that man is he's the uncle rico of this area he can throw a pigskin a quarter mile yeah not only can he do that he can 
tantalize your ears with his beautiful, beautiful vocal cords. I've never had audio make me orgasm until I heard him <laughs> sing. Rusty's a fantastic artist, fantastic musician. As you guys know, the old show opens and a lot of what we did in the show previously, Last Flight Home inspired. Last Flight Home was Rusty's band. We talked about Last Flight Home when Marcus was on the episode because he was in Last Flight Home and his influence and in hanging out with Rusty and those guys. I don't think those guys understood like how much that band meant to so many people oh, yeah. around here. So Without it's going to be exciting to talk to him about I've that. I've got some really funny stories to tell Rusty when he's on that has not been shared with our audience. Yeah. And they're very embarrassing about me specifically. And I do not care to share them because they're fucking hilarious. And I will laugh at myself. Yeah. Any day that. of the week. Hell yeah. So uh, you guys look forward to that conversation when we have Rusty on the show. But Rusty's still doing music. It's really amazing as well. And so we'll be promoting that. And he may have some new music to debut on the podcast for us. That'd be awesome. Quarterback Punk is the name of that act in particular that he's doing some music with. And um, I highly recommend folks check it out. It's on streaming services, Spotify specifically. If you have it, check out Quarterback Punk and Rusty Leonard's music. I think we're going to end this year strong. And we're going to start next year strong as well. Yeah, it's been a it's been a blast. And like I said, I'm so excited to see what we can do next year and next season, who we can have on. So, yeah, I'm pumped for it, man. And this year, we we brought a variety of people that we knew and we were comfortable with or people we hadn't connected with in years or people we didn't know at all. Right. You know, this episode in particular with Ian didn't have any background with Ian. I just stumbled upon his work on social media, was highly impressed with his aesthetic, his pop artwork in particular, then found out he did all this other stuff. And I just thought he was such a fascinating guy with such a variety in his background lo and behold he was kind enough to give us some time and do the show so those are the type of things we're going to continue to bring you guys i'm going to be out there headhunting social media and those types of places for some obscure unexpected guests that don't necessarily have connections to the area too but as you know a lot of the guests that we have here on the show have ties to the mineral area here in the midwest southeast missouri in particular or the st louis area which is kind of our stomping grounds and our roots and uh, people that have went on to do bigger and better things but maybe hey, some repeat or a variety maybe some repeats too and there's going to be some repeat because we got some guys doing some amazing things right, and right. putting out new material next year forward to having Marcus back on the show on season two as well. He's got several projects in the works. And then we also have a local area legend, another musician that'll be on the show in season two, and that's Calvin McRoy. Another he last ties home in, connection. Yeah, he ties yeah. <laughs> He's another god around here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Not waving but drowning is another amazing band. Anything the man has done, time and time, yeah. the Firebird Suite, he is a phenomenal drummer he is you know they say don't meet your idols but he is he is an idol to me he's such a great guy too such a nice guy very humble people so i'm excited to have them as guests yeah and excited to feature those type of people because you know them you know they're good people they're the people that deserve the attention they deserve the spotlight they deserve that springboard right i'm barrett at barry insane on instagram and twitter and he's josh underscore joshua welch on instagram and for this week we are out of time good night and good luck stay safe out there guys this is barrett from the ati podcast each week josh and i discuss current events pop culture, music, TV, movies, politics, sports. Nothing is out of bounds. You can also tune in to learn about rising artists, small businesses, whether it's music, graphic design, filmmaking, or even a brick-and-mortar mom-and-pop shop. We will be spotlighting folks and their endeavors. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Anchor, or anywhere you enjoy your podcast. Just search ATI Podcast. We would like to thank you for your continued support. And as always, please stay safe out there.
Hey, this is Josh from ACI Podcast. For show updates and news about the podcast, follow us on social media. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast 22 on Twitter at podcast underscore ATI, on Instagram at the ATI Podcast, on TikTok at ATI Podcast. DMs are always welcome. Have a question for the show? You can always email us at ATI Podcast questions at gmail.com. Stay safe out there.